You are listening to a Whitebridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. Good morning. I'd, I'd made a mental note after the first service that I was going to ask Pastor Kevin to make sure that you stay standing and not sit down. So I'm going to ask you to stand up one more time and just turn to someone and tell them that Jesus Christ is risen and tell it like you mean it. And you can remain standing as we look at the passage of scripture that will be the foundation for what we want to look at today. It is Easter, so the passage we're going to look at is one of the four gospel accounts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to go into the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, and the first 15 verses. This is what Matthew records of that morning. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so terrified of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And this is the coolest part in the whole narrative. I've got to tell you, I love the way Jesus talks to his disciples, and this is how he talks to these women. Greetings, he said. It's as though nothing out of the ordinary had happened that morning. It is as though coming out of a grave was just run-of-the-mill business. The women are expecting a dead body in the grave. And Jesus comes up to them and says, Greetings. And that is all. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. When, while the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were sleeping. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you with, with celebration in our hearts. We know the, the end story. We know that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and he is our risen Savior. And this morning, God, we rejoice in that knowledge. We rejoice in his resurrection. And Lord, we also pray that either we will have a deeper 
a deeper gratitude in our hearts, or that if we have yet to come to that decision of knowing you, that your spirit will work in our hearts and that you will bring reconciliation between man and God. In Jesus' name we pray. Please have a seat. One of the things about Easter Sunday is that we celebrate an event that is a real event. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not a story, it's not a tale, it's not a legend, it's not a myth. And even though you look at the Bible, you look at Jesus Christ's life on earth, and you find elements that are so fantastic that you cannot cannot comprehend, it is not a fantasy tale. It is not fiction. Even though you see deep love and deep sacrifice, it is not a fairy tale. It is the story of God's love and God's provision for mankind so that we can be reconciled with Him again. It is a story that divides the history of humanity. It is Easter when we see Jesus Christ, the Son of God, on the cross, and it is Easter when we see him risen as a Savior. When we come to this risen Savior, we are confronted with a question of who he really is. But before we get into the narrative and before we get too far into this, allow me to do just a quick recap of how we get to Easter. Perhaps some of us were not here on Good Friday or just need a refresher. But allow me to just walk you through that. The road to Easter, even though in fresh memory, leads through Palm Sunday and Good Friday, it actually starts almost 33 years prior. It starts in Israel. It starts when an angel of the Lord comes to a virgin in Bethlehem and says, You shall bear a son, and he shall be called the Son of the Most High. The same angel then goes on to a man, Joseph, who's betrothed to Mary and says, take Mary as your wife because the son that she bears is the son of God. His name shall be Emmanuel, which means God with us. And as the story progresses, another set of angels appears to a ragtag group of shepherds who come and bow down before this baby. Wise men in the east see a spectacular star that signifies the birth of a king. And they come and bring gifts for this king. Over the course of his life, as the baby Jesus turns into boy Jesus, adolescent Jesus, teenager Jesus, he takes on his earthly father's trade, which is carpentry. And not much is known about his life between the age of 12 and the age of 30. But at the age of 30, he decides to take on the business of his heavenly father, which is the ministry that he has been sent for. He comes to this earth as a baby to carry out the mission that God the Father had placed on him. His mission, above all else, was to reconcile mankind to God. Reconciliation that was necessary because Adam had sinned and there was a rift between God and God who is holy, and mankind who was sinful. This was the mission that Jesus Christ had. During his three years of ministry on earth, he gathered around him a group of 12 men. They were not noble men. 
They were not from the upper echelons of society. They were commoners. Most of them were fishermen. One was a tax collector. Another was a zealot. But these are the men that he gathered around him as his closest followers. He performed divine miracles, supernatural miracles that cannot be explained. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He calmed the storms. He walked on water. He preached from the mountaintops and in gatherings and in synagogues. And he preached in boats along the shore. He showed emotions of compassion and anger. He wept and he grieved. He spoke gently to the masses who came to see him because they sought rest. And he spoke, rebuked harshly those who were looking to trap him in his own words. He made enemies that would stop at nothing except his death. And he made friends that would give their lives for his sake. He is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. But the Bible tells us that he was led to his slaughter like a lamb. He was proclaimed as the Son of God, but he died on the cross like a common criminal. This is Jesus. He is real. He is a real person who lived a real life on earth. His death was real, and so is his resurrection. One week before Good Friday or before Easter, Jesus enters into Jerusalem and crowds gathered around him, and they threw palm branches and their cloaks before him, and they shouted, Hosanna! They were expecting a political king who would save them, who would save them from the oppression of the Roman Empire. Their reception of Jesus Christ irked the religious elite. And they set in motion this plan to arrest Jesus. They arrested him in in the Garden of Gethsemane through one of his own, through Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. After arresting him, they conducted a trial, which was nothing more than a blatant mockery of justice. And they found him guilty of blasphemy. Guilty of blasphemy because God incarnate said, I am. He was speaking the truth, but the religious elite were so, so much blinded that they did not see the truth. They saw blasphemy. They sent him to Pontius Pilate, who was the governor. And so this governor presented Jesus to the crowd. Everyone is trying to blame shift. Pontius Pilate presents Jesus to the crowd and says, Who do you want me to free this this Passover? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus the Christ? And the same crowd that had shouted Hosanna a few days ago shouted, Crucify him. And so Pontius Pilate washes his hands of the affair and hands Jesus over to be executed. But even before that, he had been beaten, mocked, spat upon. He had been punched. He was stripped of his clothing and a thorn of crowns was laid on his head. He was flogged to the point that his back was completely shredded. And at that point, 
The cross was laid on him, and like a common criminal, the king of kings walks to the top of the hill to be crucified. They put nails through his arms, through his hands, and through his feet, and they crucified him. The Bible tells us that with a loud cry, Jesus Christ gave up his spirit. On the cross, when my sin and your sin was placed on Jesus Christ, we were freed from the bondage of sin because all our sin was laid upon Jesus Christ. After Jesus died, Joseph Joseph of Arimathea takes down his body, wraps him in burial clothes, and because they were entering into Sabbath, just placed the body in his own tomb. According to custom, a large stone was rolled across the grave so that any predators or thieves will not be able to enter into the grave and desecrate the body. But the religious elite, it seems, were more convinced that Jesus was going to come back to life, that they placed a Roman seal on the tomb, and then they placed guards around the tomb. Their faith in Jesus' statement that he was going to come back to life seems more certain and more sure than that of his disciples. So we come to the end of Good Friday. And by this time, by this time, all of Jesus' followers have fled. Some of them fled in the Garden of Gethsemane. But most of them stayed, stayed at the cross, stayed under the cross, and then went away. It seems that the disciples of Jesus Christ would have been in terrible shock that weekend. The shock probably would have come from simply experiencing the brutality that Jesus had gone through, seeing him on the cross, not looking at all like how they were used to seeing him. Maybe they were shocked because they were expecting Jesus to come down from the cross. They were expecting that he who had healed many and even raised people from the dead could command any power and come down from the cross and once and for all prove that he he himself was God. But none of that happened. None of that happened. Jesus did die on the cross. He was laid in a tomb. And from the vantage point of Jesus' disciples... It was the end of all hope. Friday night was a bleak night. Jesus Christ was dead. But then we come to Sunday morning. We come to Easter Sunday. And all heaven is aware now that Jesus Christ has risen. You know, Pastor... Kevin spoke of the angels that they weren't even aware of the plan of redemption. So can you imagine the surprise of this angel who got to come down and deliver the news? Can you imagine he's just going around in heaven and suddenly gets the call, you're the one who's going to deliver the greatest good news ever. You're going down to the grave that the sun was laid in and remove that stone, not because the sun needed to get out, but because people needed to look in. They needed to see that the tomb was empty. 
And once you get there, a bunch of women will show up and you will give them the greatest news ever. And so this angel comes down. He does what he's been told. And the women make their way to the tomb. You know, first, there's an observation that you can make that the Bible never tells us how the resurrection occurred. It never walks us through the mechanics of the resurrection. Bible does that wherever there's an element that requires genuine faith. Wherever there's an element that requires us to believe, the Bible just glances over that. In the first book of the Bible, it starts with, the English Bible starts with four words, in the beginning, God, and goes on to tell the creation story. It does not try to explain who God was, where he came from, how he came about, because the concept of God is so beyond our understanding. The resurrection is at the same scale. We do not know except that God, in his power, made that happen. And so the women arrive at the tomb. And by their arrival, we can make a second observation, which is this. The disciples of Jesus Christ had lost all hope. The the Gospels of Luke and Mark say that Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome, Joanna, and some other women had already bought the perfumes, the spices. They'd prepared them to anoint the body of Jesus Christ. You don't go through all that prep work if you're expecting the tomb to be empty. You do all these things, you go through all those actions because you're fully expecting a body to be in the grave. And so the only conclusion you can come to is that they had given up all hope. Jesus Christ had failed, he had died, he had been buried And now we should go and put him through a proper burial. That was their mindset that is evident from their actions. Now if we take a a quick detour, of all the women that are listed in the Gospels, there is one name that is visibly absent. It is Mary, the mother of Jesus. She is the one who has been with Jesus from birth all the way to the end. And yet she is not mentioned as part of this group. There's a couple of possibilities. At the cross, Jesus had said to John the Apostle, this is your mother. He had looked at Mary and said, this is your son. So we know that John the Apostle had adopted Mary as his mother and she would have lived with John the Apostle for the rest of her life. So it is possible that she was not there because she was at John's John's home. There is another interesting possibility. And that comes up when we consider Mary's life. You know, her first encounter about Jesus was with the angel. So she gets an angelic being come to her and tell her, you're going to bear the Son of God. Throughout Jesus' life, she has witnessed him displaying divine power in everything he does. And even though we don't have any glimpse between the ages of 12 and 30, it is possible that she had witnessed Jesus doing stuff that was completely divine and completely extraordinary. She believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. And we see the evidence of that when we go to the wedding scene in Cana. Uh, If you remember the story, the groom's family had run out of wine for the guests, so Mary comes to Jesus and says, "They're, they're out of wine. 
And Jesus says, dear woman, why are you involving me? My time has not yet come. And Mary, being a mother, of course, doesn't listen to Jesus. She just turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. And Jesus, being a good son and an obedient son, does what his mother asked him. He did turn water into wine. So we know that she had seen and witnessed evidence. The Bible also tells us that Mary would see these supernatural things, these extraordinary things happening around her, and she would treasure them in her heart and ponder upon them. And so for Mary to be absent from this scene, we can speculate that she had no reason to expect a dead body in the grave. Jesus had been a perfect son. He had never lied to her, and she had no reason that he was going to start with his death. She believed that the tomb would be empty. And that's why she does not go to the grave. Now going back to the other women who did go to the grave, they find that the stone's been rolled, the angel of the Lord is sitting, waiting for them. And like all the other angels in the, in the Gospels, he proclaims the good news. He proclaims the best news ever. And he starts with a statement of comfort. He says to the women, do not be afraid or fear not. Fear not. That is the same phrase that Jesus says to the women when they see him just a little while later. Do not be afraid. You know, that's the message that Jesus has for anyone who has put their trust in him. Even today, that message is the same. Be not afraid. Fear not. We fear not because our hope and our courage lies in a risen Savior. We fear not because our King and our Savior is alive and he has conquered sin and death. There is nothing for us to fear. The angel goes on to affirm Jesus' words and he says, He has risen just as he said. Just as he said. Trust what God has spoken to you. Trust the promises he has made. His promises that he has spoken will come true. He is a God who takes his word seriously. And what he promises is fulfilled. Now, after receiving this message, the women are super excited. They're supercharged. They run back to the disciples and they burst into the house and they are hitting the ceiling because they can't contain themselves. So they tell the disciples, he is risen. He is risen. We saw the empty tomb. He is he's not there. He is risen. We've got to go see him in Galilee. And one would expect that the disciples will be overjoyed. They would be clamoring over each other to get to the empty tomb to actually witness this. But that's not what happens. The Bible says, and actually Luke is so pointed in this, he says, the apostles did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. They were so stuck in their own ways that they could not accept that Jesus Christ had risen. They were so stuck in this cultural stigma that women's testimony amounts to nothing that they did not even acknowledge the fact that they were proclaiming the good news. 
You know, if the, if the gospel writers had really wanted to build a solid case, if this was a fabrication, they would have gone and picked some really, really influential people. They could have picked the Roman centurion who was at the cross, or maybe somebody else with, with a big title behind their name, 17 different acronyms, or TLAs behind their name. They did not. They went with the testimony of the women. Or they could have gone with the religious elite because they had the authority. So they could have gone to the Sanhedrin or some chief priests and got them to validate that the tomb was empty. But they did not. They recorded it just as it happened. Even at the risk of skepticism, they recorded the events just as they happened. No embellishments, no need for flair stories, nothing like that. And so the truth of Jesus Christ's resurrection becomes real over the next 40 days. There are a number of different accounts, with 10 different accounts, where Jesus encounters his disciples. He meets Mary Magdalene. He meets Mary, Joanna, Salome, and some of the other women. He meets Simon Peter. He meets the two disciples who are on their way to Emmaus. He meets the 11 disciples, but without Thomas. Then he meets the 11 disciples again, and this time with Thomas, and that's where we get the story of Thomas uh, doubting the resurrection. He meets the seven disciples at the Sea of Tiberias because seven of them decided that, you know what, it's all over. Let's go back, do some fishing. And so they find that Jesus is on the, on the shore making breakfast for them. You know, he's making his own fish. Then, and this is the biggest, biggest count that the Bible gives us, the disciples and a large gathering of over 500 people witness Jesus Christ. Then Jesus appears to James. And then finally, he appears to the disciple, leads them to the Mount of Olives, gives them the Great Commission, and ascends into heaven. What was theoretical, what was just rumor, was substantiated when they encountered Jesus Christ. There are more eyewitness accounts of the resurrected Christ than there are of the moon landing. Now, I know, I know some of you are thinking the exact same thing that my son was thinking. When I told him this, he said, I've seen the moon landing. I've seen it on TV. But what defines an eyewitness? Someone who witnesses the event because they are present when the event happens. So if you take the moon landing, for example, how many eyewitnesses are there really? Two. Or maybe the third guy who was buzzing around the moon because he could have seen them. But all of us are second-hand witnesses. We have seen a TV broadcast. Only Neil Armstrong can say, I was on the moon. I am an eyewitness to the event. And so in this case, Jesus has far more, far more eyewitnesses of his resurrected body and of his time after the resurrection. The resurrection impacts us like nothing else. It is a one event in the history of humanity that divides humanity. But it divides humanity and reconciles to God. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not something we take lightly. On the stage of world religions, Christianity stands alone 
because of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. On the stage of all the leaders of the world's faiths, Jesus Christ is the only one who claimed that he would die and be raised up on the third day, and his claim is true. He is the only one who makes that claim, and with the proof for that claim, he claims his divinity. You know, there's a, there's a lot of conversation these days about um, interfaith, reconciliation, and, and so on. And I believe that Christians should work with other faith people when it comes to social justice issues, or how to resolve them, or how to serve our communities. We are called to be that. We should be leading those efforts. But there is one thing, there is one thing that cannot and must not be ever up for debate. And it is the divinity of Jesus Christ. We can agree on how to address poverty in North End of Winnipeg, but not at the expense of removing Jesus Christ from his divinity and relegating him to a prophet because another faith believes that that's all he is. Or removing him as God who is seated on high and bringing him down to another small g God because another faith can accommodate another God. There is one line that must be drawn and that is on the divinity of Jesus Christ. His resurrection is his final proof that he is God. John MacArthur says this about resurrection. The resurrection of Christ is the greatest event in history. It is the main event in God's redemptive plan. It is the cornerstone and foundation of the gospel. According to Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, in order to be saved, you have to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, we understand that the message that God has delivered to sinners throughout all the scriptures is that death does not end our existence. That is the message of Scripture from start to the finish, that death is merely the doorway into eternity. For those who by faith have come into the kingdom of God, into the realm of salvation, the promise is that they will experience a resurrection unto life, that not only will their spirits dwell forever in the presence of God in eternal bliss, but they will receive a resurrected body fit for that everlasting joy. End quote. You know, Paul says something similar. He says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says this, starting in verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, and if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. If our hope is in a dead carpenter who was never raised from the grave, then we are to be pitied. 
every one of us, every believer who has died over the millennia, believing that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, they are to be pitied. But then Paul goes on to say this, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. The resurrection of Jesus Christ impacted his disciples, the twelve apostles, to the point where they gave their lives. Every one of them was martyred. And I know that we, we often look at John the Apostle and say, well, he just died of old age. But it's not like he was sitting on the island of Patmos on the sandy beaches and sipping drinks with umbrellas in them. He was tortured through his life and thrown in a prison. He just died of old age in the prison. Every single one of these 12 men were tortured for their faith. And what started back in the first century has not ended. Men and women through the centuries and today are dying because they believe in a risen Savior. You know, Chuck Colson has a, has a different take on the resurrection. I'll just read this for you. I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years. Absolutely impossible. End quote. There is a cost to follow Jesus Christ. The cost is temporal. It is earthly. And the reward is divine and eternal. Many of you in this room have come to that acceptance. You have seen Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. You have come to know him as the risen Savior. You have seen the transformation in you and others around you. You know this Jesus Christ. But some may not be there. We're going to take, take a couple of minutes of our time to just enter into a time of prayer. We'll have the worship team come up as well. And in that time of silence, if you're in a relationship with Jesus Christ, give Him glory and give Him praise. And let that be a prayer of gratitude for you. But if you're not at that point, then we pray that the Holy Spirit will lead you to that and you can use that time to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, God is not into oratorial speeches. And he is not into fancy words and fancy prayers. If you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, all you have to do is acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge his lordship in your life. And acknowledge that from this day forward, he is your Lord and King. We're going to enter into a time of prayer and then I can close.
Father God, we come to you. And for those of us who have placed our trust in you, who've entered into a relationship with you, Easter Sunday is a time of celebration and rejoicing. It is a time when we realize that it could have been us on that cross on the Friday, but it wasn't. It was the Son of God who took our sins. He became sin. And through his death on the cross, we have received freedom, freedom from sin. Lord, we also come to the empty tomb and we encounter the risen Christ. And because of his resurrection, we receive eternal life. We receive a life of eternity after, even after we pass through the door of death. We enter into a life with you forever and ever. Father, I pray that if there are any in this room who have yet to make the decision that your Holy Spirit will work on their, on their hearts, that he will bring them to this point of acceptance and acknowledgement and submission, that they will lay their lives down, their self down, their pride, all at the foot of the cross and look up to the risen Savior. Lord, without you, we have nothing. Lord, we pray, we pray in earnest that you will turn your hearts towards you. In Jesus' name, amen.